Well, today we're going to be continuing on a series that we started two weeks ago on the preeminence of Christ. It's been so good so far. And to anyone who is uh, jumping in uh, today for the first time, what we mean by preeminence is that Jesus has first place over all things, that he is all powerful, always, at all times, over everything. That Jesus is not just a king, but he is the king of all kings, the king eternally. If you've struggled to get your mind over this this concept and and, uh, to to fathom just uh, how mighty, uh, how, how supreme, how majestic Jesus is and what it means for us, then can I tell you today that you're in good company. Today, we're going to be looking uh, in particular at the exchange that took place at the cross. Did you know that it's okay to talk about the cross uh, when it's not Easter? <laughs> and, and really, the cross is, is the pivotal moment in human history that, that has, has changed uh, the world forever. And I think we need to ask ourselves at times, what actually happened at the cross? You see, the cross was not a last-minute call that God made in the heat of the moment when things weren't going well. The cross was not God's plan B. Instead, the suffering that Jesus endured at the cross was planned in the heavenly places from the beginning of time. Now, this year as a church, our theme has been, uh, I will restore. And throughout the year, we have... uh, We have celebrated the fact that God restores the years that the locusts have eaten, that he restores the brokenness in our life, that he is the God of restoration. And as we look at the exchange that took place at the cross, we'll see that the cross is central to God's restorative agenda. But just to to break things down a little bit, we're going to be looking today at the suffering of Christ, the substitute of Christ, and the supremacy of Christ. I got kind of stuck on the S's. I could think of loads more, but I had to cap it somewhere. But uh, I work in an office environment and uh, I hear the name of Jesus uh, spoken multiple times every day. Um, I don't actually work in the church. Uh, I hear Jesus' name spoken out very loudly and it's usually to curse. It's usually uh, in anger and it's, it can be upsetting, right? And there's a part of me that wonders that, Hmm, if, if I was a, a Muslim or a, a Buddhist or a Hindu or from some other faith, uh, faith group, that surely they wouldn't attack my belief system in this way. Because that wouldn't be the, the tolerant thing, the PC thing to do, right? But for, for Jesus, in, in Western culture at least, it has become open slather, where, where his name is mixed with the, the very worst of names in the English lexicon, uh, just for dramatic effect, just for people to make their point. And, and little do, do we realize that as Jesus' name is, is abused, as it is denigrated, that this is just a, a, a fraction of the suffering and the humiliation that he has already endured for us on the cross on our behalf. If you've got your Bibles today, we're going to be uh, looking at a, a passage on the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read from uh, verses 4 to 6. It says, Surely... He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this is a really heavy passage. These these verses are part of a a passage written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And they depict a a suffering servant, a servant who was was brutalized, whose body was was mangled and ripped apart for a, a wrongdoing that was not his, a punishment that was not his. And in the New Testament, we can read that that Peter and Matthew in particular identified this suffering servant 700 years before the life of Jesus as a a, a prophecy about our Saviour who suffered and died. To understand the narrative of the suffering servant, it's actually important uh, for us to first confront our our sin, our brokenness, because it helps us understand the the, the beauty and the the significance of what what he endured. So just to pick up on uh, verse 6, it says, each of us have turned to our own way. This is important because it's not talking about all those other people. It says, all of us have turned our own way. And in, in society today, it's, it's kind of not cool to talk about sin, right? We, we trivialize sin and we try to justify ourselves and rationalize our behavior. And uh, really, by doing this, we're, we're insulating us from the reality, from the knowledge deep down that, that inside of us, something is wrong. There's a, a defiance in our, our being, a rebelliousness towards God. And it's not out there. It's not society. It's, it's not our culture. It's not our environment. It's us. As one writer put it, he said, the enemy is not outside the ramparts. The enemy is in the castle. Paul puts it bluntly as well in Ephesians 2.5. He says, actually, we were dead in our trespasses. The result of our sinfulness is that we are spiritually dead, that we are alienated, separated, estranged from God. And there is nothing of our own strength that we can do to come back to that. And the reason I I go on like this, I know it's it's getting pretty bleak at the very beginning of a sermon, but the only way that we can understand the triumph of the cross, the only way that we can understand the depth of God's love for us is to understand the gravity of our sin. Because the suffering of Christ The suffering that the servant, the righteous servant endured was in response to our condition of brokenness. Now we see over and over again in Isaiah 53 that Jesus' punishment, Jesus' death was punishment for our sins. And we we understand the concept of, of punishment, right? That a penalty is paid for wrongdoing so that there can be justice. And that in order for there to be justice, the punishment has to be proportionate to the crime and the punishment actually has to be handed down to the right person. But going back to to verses 4 and 5, it says here, he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Not, Not theirs, not someone over there, yours and mine. 
And I think that the word iniquity here, it, it needs a little bit un, of unpacking to just understand the, 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 uh, the breadth of what Jesus has done. Because iniquity means more than just uh, the sinful act that we committed. Uh, it's, it's much more holistic than that. It, it's not just the sinful action in itself. It is the, the punishment for that action. And it is the evil consequences that the, that action uh, produces. Jesus took it all. Jesus took the whole package. In verse 5, it says the punishment that brought us peace was on him. That what we get out of it is his peace. And you might be asking, well, how is that fair? And in one sense, it's, it's not fair. But that is the scandal of grace. That not only did Jesus receive our punishment, in his suffering, he even forgave us. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the richness of his grace. And you have to get this, that when you turn to Jesus, that when you come before him in repentance, the forgiveness that he offers is absolute. You know, sometimes I think we, we, uh, we know in theory that we are forgiven, but we still walk around beating ourselves up. But Jesus actually uh, says that, that the forgiveness that he gives makes us clean, makes us white as snow, makes us pure, so that we are not uh, defiled. We are not second rate. We are not uh, dirty. We are not has been. We are not past our expiry date. The forgiveness uh, makes us clean before the Father so that we can come into his presence. His forgiveness is final. And his desire is that the forgiveness that we receive from him, from the suffering servant, actually produces within us a lifestyle of forgiveness and repentance that is active. To forgive others because Jesus, in his suffering at the cross, first forgave us. And forgiveness can be harder than it sounds, right? It's, it's easy when you're a kid and you... You, you steal someone's ice cream or you beat someone up and you say, sorry, I forgive you, and they, they have to forgive you because you're a kid. We realize that when we get older, it's, it's hard because it's tied to uh, the, the, the pain and the, the grief that we might be experiencing. And I don't want to minimize today uh, the, the reality of, of that hurt and, and wrongdoing that has been done against people. But all I can say is that wherever you are, Jesus, the suffering servant, has been there. And he's come out the other side. And that is where you find the richness of his grace. As it says in verse 5, by his wounds we are healed. Now we've talked a little bit about uh, the suffering servant bringing forgiveness and, and restoration through bearing our iniquities. Now the substitute of Christ. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics lately. Uh, I've been having a, a great time and uh, I love watching the basketball. And when I talk about the substitute of Christ, his substitution, uh, I'm not talking about uh, Patty Mills uh, running off the court uh, because he needs a breather and uh, someone comes up off the bench and subs in until he gets his legs back to get out on the court. That is not this substitution. Neither am I talking about a, a substitution uh, where our own efforts are just supplemented like a, like a top-up just to get us there because we are completely uh, dead in our sins. The idea here of, of Jesus, our substitute, 
is that not only are your sins forgiven at the cross, but that the very righteousness of Jesus is placed upon you. It is transferred to you, that you are put in right standing with God, that he would take the punishment that you deserved upon him, that I deserved upon him, and that the good that was due to Jesus might be given to us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul makes one of the most astounding declarations. He says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. And I want to ask you, do you, do you think of yourself that way? Do you, do you think of yourself as the righteousness of God? Because it sounds almost arrogant to say that to yourself, right? Especially to anyone else. But, but that is the truth. That is this scandal of grace. And I think sometimes we get a bit lost with this word righteousness. Paul is not talking about the good deeds that we do uh, in our lives. He's not talking about the phone calls that you make to grandma in lockdown. Uh, he's talking about something so much more than that, about God's own righteousness, about a holiness about a purity that we could not attain on ourselves. And there's actually a legal connotation here. If you just picture yourself for a moment in a courtroom before the judge, it is as if uh, the judge is, is not giving you what you deserve. Instead, the judge has declared that our sin has been given to Jesus. And Jesus' uh, righteousness, his, his right standing before God, his ability to stand before him in the throne of grace, uh, that has been given to us. That is the access that we have been given through this substitution. In Colossians 2.14, uh, this, this idea of, of, of illegal handing down of our righteousness continues. It says, he forgave all our sins by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing them to the cross. And so can I just say today that if you are worried about judgment, if you, if you are fearing God's judgment yet you are in Christ, can I tell you that our judgment has already been made? And it is this, that God looks at you and says, I love you. It, it cost me a lot, but I love you. It means that whatever sins of the past that we hold against ourselves are nailed to the cross, that there is no record of them in God's books. It says that our sins are as far removed as the east is from the west. You are made holy and blameless without a single fault. And you know, there's, there's a lot going on here when we talk about the substitution of Christ. We see Jesus as our atoning sacrifice, that he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that was handed down to Israel so that our sin would be dealt with once and for all. But unlike the, the sacrificial system under Jewish law, which, which uh, relied on the sacrifice of, of animals to symbolically atone for sins, we can see in the account of the suffering servant that he did not only die physically, he was not only punished physically, and this, this really hit me this week. If we uh, go to verse 10, it says that the suffering servant's soul, his very soul, was an offering for guilt. And then again in verse 11, it says his soul was in anguish. And then in verse 12, again, just to get the point across, it says he poured out his soul unto death. 
You see, Jesus' love for you, Jesus' love for me was so great that he would uh, give up his deepest inner self, that the very uh, fabric of his being would be uh, uh, submitted to death so that we might have his life transferred upon us, that his soul would be God-forsaken so that we might enter his presence, the presence of God. Which brings us to the supremacy of Christ. The idea that the power that Jesus unleashed on the cross through his suffering, through his substitution, was so immense that it broke death, that it delivered victory over the grave. Going back to the the suffering servant in verse 10 again, we see something, and and I apologize in advance because this might hurt your brain a little bit. It, it, It does for me too. It says in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this, this raises to me several questions, right? I mean, how is that fair? How can it be that, that God would, would crush his own one, one and only beloved son? How could Jesus' death be God's will? Wasn't there another way? Isn't that a bit harsh? But the cross was no mistake. The cross was God's master plan executed flawlessly. He didn't die because the plan got stuffed up. This was not plan B. Death was the plan so that you could enter into his salvation, his restoration, redemption, that it would all be won by the mighty work of Jesus. Because if the cross was the plan, then the resurrection was the plan. And in a world where our plans fail all the time, It gives me great confidence that this plan cannot fail. It has been sealed and the victory has been won. The cross was no mistake. God was intentional about his plans to save you, showing the depths of his heart for you, his desire to have you come before him and be a child of God in his kingdom. Going back to the suffering servant in verse 10, we see that even after the, the, the suffering that he endured, even after his, his soul was offered up in death, there is the resurrection in view. It says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this can be a, a little bit hard to, to see what's going on here, but it's really important. Because when it says the suffering servant will see his offspring, this foreshadows the victory and the resurrection of Christ, accomplished through the suffering servant, that even after death, he will be raised up and he will be uh, returned and see his spiritual heirs, the church, you and I before him, that we will be in relationship with him. When it says that he shall prolong his days, it tells us that the suffering servant will reign supreme, that his kingdom will be a kingdom that will know no end, that he is going from everlasting glory to glory. And when it says that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, it tells us that nothing can thwart the plans of God. Nothing can stop his will from being accomplished. That in Jesus' supreme power, all of our needs, our financial needs, our relational needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, everything can be met in Him. And you know, Paul was so sure of this that he declared in Philippians 4.19, And my God, 
He had the audacity to say, my God, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And in case you're not catching this, Jesus' victory over the cross was total. We see it in the account of the suffering servant. The cross saves us. The cross restores us. The cross makes us holy in God's sight. And it gives us a fresh perspective so that we can see the world no longer out of a place of fear, no longer out of a place of mistrust or a desire for selfish gain, but with the knowledge that he has won our salvation once and all. We have a deep security in him, a rest in him. And if you are watching online, I'm going to ask you to to do something uh, with me today, and that is to, to respond. Not to respond to me because really I'm, I'm just a guy and I can't save you. But we've heard of, of the majestic power, the immense power that was uh, transferred at the cross from Jesus to uh, those who would receive him as his saviour, as their saviour. I'm asking you to, to, to pray a prayer of faith with me. That, that God, I believe you, that God, this sounds good, that this is something that I want. And I admit that I have been broken and I am in need of, of your help, of your love, of your grace, because I can't do it on my own. And the world is hard, but I see that you give me strength to endure. I want to walk this walk with you.